You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. I'm so excited to be here this week because we have a special guest from, well, I don't, what, what earth are you from? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'd like to say I'm from the prime earth, but these days it's, it's thinking more and more like uh, I might be a Terran. I'm not certain, but <laughs> sorry, I just crossed the beams here. Um, I guess the Zeta need, beams, uh, one might say. The, well, the most, yeah, the cross streams. Yeah, the, mo- the most important thing, right, is that if we have faith, it seems like we can travel to different Earths. So maybe we can try to find the right one together. There you go. Let's let's make that happen. Um, well, I'm excited to have Nick Anastasio back as this week uh, we're going to be discussing the third season of Man in the High Castles. We've already talked through seasons one and two. And uh, really, I mean, this, this season is just jam-packed with things, so we have so much to talk about. Before we do that, I want to uh, just say a uh, quick thank you to everybody for listening and, of course, you know, for finding us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can, uh, you know, anywhere you get your podcast, type in The 602 Club. Make sure you subscribe so you get the episode as soon as we drop it. And then make sure, too, uh, if you're over on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, give us a star rating review. Help people find the show that way. That's a huge help to us. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM and Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Uh, we've got the Listeners Only Discussion Group where you can connect with all of the different listeners from TrekFM all around the world. That's on Facebook. Um, type Babel into the search field there or on the website at Trek.FM. You can hit discussion on any of the menu bars and that would let you into that group. So you can discuss, like I said, just every single thing that we're talking about here on TrekFM because there's so much that we are talking about. And then last but not least, maybe you would like to send an email to us. Christy and I love getting emails. So uh, go over to trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. Choose the 602 Club. And uh, that will send an email to us. And Christy and I will be able to respond to you that way. So, uh, Nick, um, coming into... I, I just This isn't even on the outline, but I was just thinking about this. You know, coming into this in season three... After where we left off in season two, you know, we we end on that shot where we see that Trudy is still alive somehow. And um, I'm sure you probably thought this, too. Oh, that's probably not our Trudy. That's got to be an alternate Trudy. But really leaving it on that, plus that whole conversation with um, with Abe about, you know, why he, you know, picked Juliana and how special she is. Uh, what were you... Where were you kind of coming into the season? Were you excited about season three? Were you and and what did you kind of maybe hope for the season? Um, I was very excited. Um, I was very excited. Uh, obviously, like you said, it's some of the cliffhangery kind of things that we were left off at the end of season two. I had ideas for where they were going to go, but at this point, it, it you know, 
I was, uh, I still felt, even if I kind of knew where it was going, that it was, they, they were great sort of things to leave us on. More than anything, I was really excited about the character of Juliana. And I think we talked about that when we, when we went over the, the first couple of seasons is I really felt like uh, the showrunners, the producers and writers did a great job with um, having her emerge as a new kind of hero, um, which serves the light. Uh, I'm using cross-references from all over the place today, but um, in a way that I felt was both classic and new because they were really saying, you know, the, the moral high ground, the light is not about a um, sort of a, of a, of an idea on paper of good or bad. It's about what's inside of you. And if you look inside, anyone is able to tell at any given moment, what is the right thing to do with There's not, there's not a, a book of law, you know, there's the spirit of the law and the, and it's in a, in a way I felt like that was the message that, that I took away from season two was look inside for the spirit of, of what is good. And you will know that more than any word from the outside, from any, any political, social, cultural, religious agenda, it's inside of you. And um, I thought that was a great, great, it felt very fresh. Um, I was really excited to see what they were going to do with that. Um, and at the same time as it, you know, I felt like her character did follow a lot of the the the, the beats of the hero's journey. It kind of it was a, a fresh enough, new enough twist on it that I really uh, wanted to see where they were going to go uh, with Juliana in season three. Yeah, I thought that the way in which um, you end that season, where you kind of, and, and in some ways, you know, she gets that reward of, you know, because we leave on the cliffhanger of her sister being there, and um, you know. Uh, her being chosen because of the way in which her choices continually um, do choose the side of the right and light and goodness. Um, and that, that those impact the people around her that, that, you know, we talk, you know, there's always the idea of the sphere of influence that you have and that Juliana's no matter what, you know, um, or universe, whatever film, that Hawthorne saw is that no matter uh, what Juliana, she had this ability to influence those around her for the better by the choices that she made. Um, and I just thought that was something that was really fascinating because, I mean, it really kind of drives home the point that, you know, it's not about where we're from or who we are or what, you know, political ideology we had growing up or where we grew up or any of those things, it becomes about the choices we make and the choices we make then um, are very much uh, who we are going to be and that those should decide who we're going to be, not some job or, you know, what culture says about us or anything like that. Um, and, you know, that in in many ways there was a a sense of that, you know, obviously, you know, the, the main world that we see in the films that they're kind of comparing us to is our world today, you know, um, you know, and the fact where, uh, you know, they see the world where the allies won the war. And so that there is this sense that different 
choices were made that allowed those things to happen. And again, it becomes about like, what do we choose? Do we choose um, what is good? Um, and, and, and or do we choose what is like expedient or, you know, it's kind of like Star Wars. <laughs> it's like the dark and the uh, the, the la- dark side and the light side. Do we choose what is selfless or do we choose what is selfish? And, you know, what we see, I think, in, in their world is a world that chooses more of what is selfish um, and uh, people trying to guard that selfishness by what they create. And, and it just created a really interesting milieu to be in. And I think that first and second season really captured me. So coming into season three, I was I was pretty excited to see where they would go with all of that because they're, you know, there's you have a big canvas now. Yeah, and oh, well, and your comparison to Star Wars is very interesting because, um, I, and I don't think that they're exclusive. Um, I agree with you. Um, what I thought was interesting, and again, it's not so much that one is contradicting the other; it's more kind of I think it's just a different a different approach. Uh, uh, George, you know, has has often talked about the fact that um, you know the idea of gray um, in his own belief is not as like, he doesn't really believe in that, and and that is an excuse that people who do bad things often use, and that you know, is there is good and there is bad and that, and that, and that's actually pretty easy to tell the difference apart and you can choose. Um, even though he has explored in his own ways in the, in the, the prequel trilogy, the fact that you, you know, the line, there's heroes and villains on both sides, but, uh, you know, the archetypes that he chooses are, are very much about like, okay, evil is pure evil and good is good. And, and there are, you know, he, I mean, the whole Skywalker, family is an exploration and kind of like walking the line but at the end of the day there's still a, a decision you know and you, you can't you can't just walk the line forever or that will actually or the choice will be made for you and i don't think that the world of of uh, man in the high castle says that there is gray but i think that what i, what I thought was very interesting is that it actually says again it, there's not like if you look at the the different realities, like you were comparing sort of our world to the one that most of the story is set in in, in the in the series. The easy thing to do, which most of these parallel world stories have done, is to say, well, there's like Star Trek, for example. You know, to go back to my original my original um, comparison, there's the mirror universe and there's our universe. And generally speaking, yeah, there are bad guys and better people in both. But generally speaking one is kind of a more negative version and the other one is the more positive version. One is kind of the one we embrace. The other one is the one we don't want. And I, what I like about uh, what the man in high castle was doing, especially in season two is it was saying, you know, all these things that exist are neither, there's no, there's not like a right way and a wrong way. It's not going to be, you know, and, and it kind of plays upon our assumptions of that. When Tagomi first crosses into our world, initially he's overcome with the idea well, that this is a world where where everything is is sort of like you know the prime universe version of, of this this story right and versus his being kind of the the negative universe but then he realizes well they have their own problems their own failures their own moral um moral quandaries and so and i think that that really kind of elevates him as a character because then he goes to the next step in enlightenment, which is to really understand that there is never going to be s- such an easy thing as to say, okay, light, dark, um, it's inside of you. And, and the world is always complex. 
And it's really on an individual level that the responsibility begins and that the consequences incur later. And, and he sees that, you know, in, in every reality, then there's an opportunity to do the right thing and to help create a better world. Um, maybe not a perfect one, maybe never a perfect one, but a better one. And I, uh, that's, that's one thing that I was, again, really, really excited to see develop um, in season three and to see what they were going to do with that. Um, and in a way, I liked what they did, but in a way, and I don't want to say I didn't like, um, I, I, I did feel like the most sophisticated season in terms of pushing these ideas forward was the second one. And I, I feel like the third one was great. We can start talking specifically about season three, but I felt like it kind of went back towards a somewhat more straightforward, linear kind of good, bad, um, and sort of, it, it didn't push some of those concepts I just talked about as far as I would have liked, uh, except in one area that we'll touch upon, which has to do with Frank um, and um, the whole year null also uh, with, with Himmler. And I thought was was really, really, really superb. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about uh, season three was this kind of idea you know we've we've set up and we've especially in season two we saw the the reich specifically and the 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 strain of people who live in this place um that are having trouble living by the rules that they say they believe in and actually finding those rules to be somewhat unlivable so we have different versions of that you know when you see Nicole with her friend, you know, the where, you know, they they have feelings that the, the, the Reich would call, you know, deviant. And, um, you know, and yet, and they know that according to Reich propaganda and, and theology, it's wrong, right? Like, uh, ideology of the Reich says, no, that is completely uh, wrong. You should not do that. You know, we see that with, um, you know, Smith and his wife, who are struggling with um, their the, the reality of, of what their son did um, because he believed, you know, the Reich ideology and therefore he willingly walked like a sheep to the slaughter uh, because he was not worthy to live in the Reich. And yet they both struggle with this. Um, and then, too, I think on top of that, we, you know, we hear these stories about the fact that there are high-ranking Reich officials who they have issues <laughs> that the Reich would deem um, inappropriate or wrong, or and yet they are given a pass. And so, uh, and in fact, I think you know it, that even brings to mind the fact you know Hitler wasn't pure uh, in his own uh, you know. With, with his own rules of, of what uh, racial purity would look like, ra Hitler was not. Um, and so I just thought it was really interesting that we're living in this, this, um, this society which says that it believes something, and yet so we see so many people actually struggling to live within the confines of what they believe to be quote-unquote right or true, I thought that was really fascinating because I think it it, it shows the um, one of the the main ways in which I think they're they're building the case towards the the Reich possibly having more cracks than we realized, 
Um, and each of these characters kind of gives a, a, a piece of, of one of those cracks. Yeah, uh, I think you're, you're totally right. And I, um, the, the, the side of the story that explored, you know, we, we always go back and forth between the, the Pacific States and the, 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 the Reich. And now we also go into the demilitarized zone quite a bit in season three. And the, the part of the series of the season that dealt with the Reich and life under the Reich and the characters within that, that microcosm, that, that subworld, um, were the ones that I thought interested me the most in season three and where I felt like the ideas that I, that I've talked about, which are the ones that really interested me in season two were pushed forward, which is kind of, it was interesting because in season two, I felt like this was really channeled and kind of like all sort of expressed almost single-handedly through Juliana. And as you said, she was kind of, she was sort of disseminating that through the other characters, but she was kind of the main voice for those themes. And I felt like it was almost the opposite way this season where it was kind of, you could kind of see it piecemeal in these secondary characters and I didn't feel it. I didn't feel like really as strongly through her. But I really loved in in um, in the Reich. Uh, I felt like the you got that exploration of these two things, which is that. Well, you first of all, I, I thought there was a, a really cool message, which is that a lot of these regimes that impose a certain type of life, a certain type of rule. Um, and sometimes we'll even kind of brag about their own success by saying, you know, the whole, like, the, you know, the trains run on time. At the end of the day, even when they're at the height of what they perceive to be their glory, their success, you can always look to them as a failure for the exact reason you described, which is that really the only way that they maintain themselves is through force. And, and pretty much any time you are able to look at the microscopic level, at the individual level, you see that there is really, there's the overt sign that there is no faith in the, at the individual level in that regime, in the ideals that it pretends to be embracing and that it pretends that its whole population embraces. That's, that's, a, that's a, a fake you know, propaganda idea that, that, that it advertises, but at, at the individual level, whether, again, whatever it is, whether it's fascism, communism, all of them, all, any dictatorial sort of tyranny will always, you can see that like, it only survives as long as it's able to impose itself. But people at the individual level very quickly just kind of move on and will do what they have to do on the surface to, to get by but will will kind of live their own life and have their own you know be their own selves whether that falls in line with the regime's idea or not and it does show that that like at every level not just you know even within the ranks of the party you kind of have people just blatantly being the exact opposite of the party ideals because this is just who they are and so there's the surface um, and then there's what there's the reality which usually is what also ends up undermining because it's sort of like you have the surface that can maintain itself through through force, but then as people kind of are themselves, that sort of lays down the grounds for what will show the system for the failure that it is, which whether it takes a year or 10 years or 100 years, usually always leads these types of regimes to fall. Um, and then I think that you have within that also the, the dichotomy I was describing of people 
having kind of the the rule of law um, imposed by a system, but then at the individual level, making the decision case by case, moment by moment, day by day, well, what is the right thing to do? And sometimes it's not not with the best motives. Sometimes it's, it's in a self-serving kind of way. What is the right thing for me to do? And sometimes it's just what is the right thing, period. But you see that there's that separation between what the blanket rule of law is and what people have to make you know, on a personal, on a personal level as they go on with their life. And I thought that, again, those would be... No, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, too, especially with Nicole, I thought she was a really interesting case study because for her, you know, she is somebody who's, and in some ways, uh, to kind of compare with Star Wars a little bit, um, again, I think she's Anakin-like in the sense that she's been told she's special. She's the future of the Reich. She's a Lebensborn, which means she has a different status. And I think that she then feels as though uh, like she she can then do what she wants, like that she will be protected because she is kind of above the rule of law, which, again, when you're talking about these ideas of these different... um, you know, fascist and communist type regimes, that's usually what you see is you see the people uh, that are in this special category that are above everybody else that get this special kind of treatment. And everybody knows that there's some, you know, things are going on that shouldn't be going on, at least according to the party propaganda and ideology. And yet they still happen and they get away with it. And, and she believes herself to be in that place. And then of course, you know, she realizes She's not, you know, which I, I think is is something that is is really fascinating to see because there's always somebody that's higher than you um, for the most part that um, can make your life miserable in these type of re- regimes. And that's exactly what happens to her. And it's also exactly the same thing, you know, that Smith is dealing with as well. As high as he gets, he's never out from under the, the, the rule of law. You know, he's never out from under that thumb of somebody higher than him, like Himmler at this point, being the Fuhrer. Um, and as much as he would like to be able to protect his family, he, he can't just brazenly uh, forget the, the rules and regulations or pretend as though he's above them. And because otherwise, as we see, you're going to be re-educated. You're going to be brainwashed to mindlessly accept what the group think of the party is, which, you know, we see sadly in Joe, um, and there's nothing of him left, you know, in this season. There's nothing of the old Joe left. He's completely gone because of what they did to him. And I fear kind of that that's exactly what's also going to happen to Nicole. And I think what that's also what we're supposed to fear could actually happen to Smith if he's not careful. And... So you're just left in this place where you feel the hypocrisy of it, right? And there's no room for hypocrisy in this type of system because there's no grace in this system whatsoever. You know, this is a system completely devoid of forgiveness and grace. Uh, And so I think that's the other thing that really um, makes the Reich just so utterly kind of disgusting is that... um, you know, it's it there. There's no we. I think we all balk and like um, get frustrated with any system that doesn't allow people to make mistakes, and this is a system that definitely doesn't allow that. 
don't 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 let me fool you in thinking that I'm I'm thinking the Reich is great all except for that. No, I mean that's on top of all of the other horrible, disgusting, awful things that they do. Um, that just happens to be kind of like the last straw. I think is that you know you see there really isn't any room for um, moving against the party unless you happen to be Himmler or you know one of his like other two top or three people. You know, otherwise. You know, you don't really get a choice. And I, it's just, a, it is a really uh, interesting place to be uh, and to see because it's it's not the kind of system, um, it is the kind of system that we definitely fear, you know, happening. And uh, the, the one where, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to fall back into anything like that again. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that, uh, again, we're, we're one of the strongest, uh, uh, strongest sort of um, points or, or, or best made points of this season um, lie, I think is the expression of that message that um, rigidity is falsehood and, 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 and that rigidity and falsehood are never self-sustainable and yes, uh, any kind of ideology whatever it is, again, political, religious, cultural, it doesn't matter when it is rigid to that extreme and that's also you know extreme and rigidity kind of go together and that's what breeds this falsehood will never be self-sustainable because it doesn't allow for um it doesn't allow for this malleable mix of the spectrum of not everyone is going to be the same not everyone is going to be able to embrace a hundred percent of a value there has to be discourse. There has to be, you know, the room for disagreement, um, for the, so that we can reach agreement. And and you know the 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 way that this is expressed in the season that that is very well done. I thought because it just shows the hypocrisy of this this the fallacy of this idea that you can kind of have an absolute rule, an absolute idea that leaves no room for deviance. And um, when we know how different people are we know that it's impossible. And so, so at the same time, it, it, even at, within at the height of a moment where this, where an ideology thinks it is in propagating this, this kind of concept, you already see how it is completely riddled with everything that's going to eventually lead to it toppling itself simply based on the fact this is, that's the thing is, you know, these ideologies always refuse to acknowledge the very simple fact that people are very different. And so you will never be able to kind of get everyone to be so uniform um, that, that they will, that you can just maintain by itself an ideology that is so monocultural. Um, even if you, even if you, succeed in kind of some of those insane genocidal ideas or eugenics so that you can call and create a population that really conforms to a certain a certain model it's only a matter of time it's only a matter of months or a few years until circumstances create people within that group that no longer fit within that model and then there there again you start having the dichotomy of well does the model shift to accommodate that in which then it, then it's no longer absolute or it doesn't. And over time for, for a time, these people may have to, to appear to conform 
But over time, as the, the divergence gets worse and worse, they won't, and then the, the system will break. And I think Smith was definitely my, my, the most interesting character for me to follow in season three because I feel like you're right. Like you, you can see some of the same potential risks um, and some of the same trajectories for him. But I think for him, it's even more complex because you have all these things happening, you know, obviously just in and of, of itself, he's aware, he's aware of what is right and wrong within the position he has and what he does. He's not a psychopath. You know, he, he, I think enjoys to a degree his, his power, his authority, um, but you can tell that he's aware of right and wrong. And so I think there's a conflict within himself. I think that there's a conflict within him and his family that grows, which I thought was very interesting because um, as, as that is, that, that's w within the, the nucleus of his family, you see the dynamic I was talking about, how a, an ideology like that is not self-sustainable because as, it, as the, the rules of the regime are becoming more and more intrusive, to his family life, it starts to break apart his family. Uh, his family being a model of what that society is, you see how, like, in the long run, you cannot, you cannot live like that indefinitely. And then, you know, there's, um, there's, I think, a third source of conflict, which is really interesting, which they seem to be exploring more and more, and I really like that, is, I mean, it's also within himself, but it's, it's kind of a past and present and future of him remembering who he was before the war was lost and what he stood for and what he fought for versus what he's become. And the fact that he became what he fought for before the war or what, what he fought against, I should say. And I, I, those are really, really interesting ideas. I think as you're talking, I was just kind of thinking, you know, this is something that we kind of see um, in the, the season here was this, this kind of idea of, the idea of quote unquote perfection as is, you know, um, given to us by the, the, the party or by, you know, um, Reich, uh, ideology and the idea of goodness. And it, I think it really, the, one of the things that I really appreciate about this season is that it, I think it does a great job of showing the utter foolishness of human ideas of perfection and how flawed we are when we try to think of what is perfect. Um, and I think, you know, it, 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 because we ourselves are not perfect. So therefore, how would we even know, you know, um, what perfect is? And so, uh, the best that we can truly do then is, is, is I think what, uh, is, is goodness. And then that's what we see the, the difference in like with Juliana versus, you know, um, Reich ideology specifically, she continually chooses what is good. Um, and, you know, the ideas of what is good are, I, I would say, in, I mean, philosophically, they're pretty utilitarian in it, it's what is good for the most amount of people. And so, uh, in, in this world. But still, it's better than, it, it's so much better than choosing um, that some you know, imperfect human decides what is perfect for the rest of the human race. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Unless you're divine, if, unless you're divine, you can't make that decision. And therefore, the best we can do is, is to follow um, 
like what you were saying earlier, we do, we have this innate sense in all of us of, of what's good. I mean, we look at, that's why when we look at the news or we look at the world, we can tell something's wrong. There is an innate sense in all of us of what is right and what is wrong. And it comes from something beyond even us. We just don't understand it, right? So, um, and and I think that's the thing we, we kind of get in, in this season is, is watching the characters kind of struggle through that. And I really liked um, you pulling out John Smith there because I... I think one of the things that this season does on top of them living with the rules is is asking the question of how to survive and how we survive and how we live with how we've chosen to survive is very important. And specifically with John Smith, I think we see that his choices on how he's chosen to survive are coming back to haunt him and are slowly destroying everything he's tried to protect. And because he's chosen the wrong path to try and protect things. Um, and it's it, that danger that he's put himself in and what he's done is just, I think is it, it's fascinating to watch because like you said, he knows what's right. He knows what's wrong and he knows he shouldn't have been doing these things, but he thought it was the best way to protect his family. But in the end, it's, it's the thing that's actually to, really working to destroy his family it's already killed his son there's the possibility of losing his daughters and he's now got a broken marriage because of it as well and so it's like everything that he wanted to protect is slowly falling apart yeah no you uh I, you're i couldn't agree more a hundred percent and i think um in a way I, i'm not sure how intentional that was or planned but in, in a beautiful way i think he this season functions almost as a central character for me um like juliana did in, in season two and he is almost an exact counterpoint but to the same to the same ultimate result or kind of the, the same point in the end is made um that she that she was in season two um she showed us that like you were saying that innate sense of what's good and wrong is what prevails and what really matters and she went by that in season two and it pays off in the sense that you you can see her kind of avoiding all these landmines you know and threats literal and figurative through the season because she kind of follows that innate instinct and says it's not i'm not going to go by something outside i'm not going to go by you know what someone tells me is right or wrong, whatever side of the fence they come from, I'm just going to go with what I know my heart tells me because that, that is stronger and purer that, that, than anything. Everything else is man-made. This is the only thing that's bigger than something made by man. And I think that Smith is the exact opposite in this season. You can see Smith as the product of what happens when someone tries to, for reasons X, Y, Z, lead their life relying on what is told to them is right or wrong. Um, whether it is, again, a political party, whether it is, you know, any kind of, of, of structured hierarchy and absolves themselves of responsibility because they can fall back on that good old line. Well, those were the orders I was given. This is what I was told was right. And, and again, you see the difference between her and him is that even though 
she makes her choices in the face of logic at times in season two, she, it does carry her through and elevate her. Whereas in his case, it's the exact opposite. We catch him in season three at sort of this breaking point in his life where, like I was saying, that sort of system is not self-sustainable and sooner or later it will catch up to, to you and it catches up to him where he's hung on to as long as possible that, that excuse of, well, the hierarchy that I live in dictates this, tells me what to do and what not to do. But it's, it's breaking him internally. Everything is falling apart. And as, it ha- and as it does, because he is an intelligent character, which is what makes it interesting, he doesn't just fall apart because he, he, you, know, you can tell that he's questioning and realizing that, well, where, where things really, where, where the decision really needed and needs to happen is where I know what's right and wrong. And that is the voice that I've, I've chosen to ignore all these years. And I've given myself a pass saying, well, this is what I have to do or what I'm told to do. But now it's catching up to me. And, and then he, as, as the consequences get worse for him, he's having to decide how he's going to deal with that, which I think that is probably the cliffhanger or sort of like the, the thing that leads to what's going to come next, which I was left with the most excited about or the most interested in to see for season four is what is Smith going to do based on this growing conflict of the internal voice that, you know, screams louder and louder in him, this is wrong. And the, the, the more you go forward in that direction, the more you're going to make things fall apart for yourself. And Smith as almost, you know, the Fuhrer who now finds himself having to, to actually go further and further in that wrong direction and enforce a system which he knows is not self-sustainable in the long run. And that, that I thought was, was interesting. Um, I think, I think in the, in the, in the character of Juliana, I was a little disappointed because I felt like she kind of took a step backward. Um, and that touches upon another issue I have with season three is I felt like they, there's too many characters um, in the season overall. And, and in her case, you know, they, they had her, it's like they, I think they wanted everything. They wanted her to kind of resolve her relationship with Frank. They wanted her to resolve her relationship with Joe. They wanted her to have this new love interest with Wyatt. And in doing that, I felt like they kind of uh, unintentionally, I'm sure, had her come across a little selfish at times because as they were trying to introduce these, these, these tangents or resolve them, they kind of had her react, you know, and every time she, one of these men comes back into her life or comes into her life, she, she sort of like spur of the moment says something to the effect of, Oh, I want to be with you. No, I want to be with you. No, I'm going to be with you. And then she kind of, she kind of, she leapfrogs back and forth between the different possible paths. But unlike the way she was in season two, I, it didn't come across to me. It came across as she was just kind of almost like a kid, not really thinking about the right thing to do or, or what she was meant to do, but just kind of like going with the pure moment of, of, this is what I want to do because this person is in front of me and now I'm reminded of how cool or how, how beautiful they are, the relationship we had. And so every, she, she's sort of like, it's almost like the writers couldn't make up their mind as to what Juliana was supposed to do. And as they were writing each episode, they kept changing their mind 
oh, you know, maybe we can have her be with Joe again. No, maybe we can have her be with Frank, maybe with Wyatt, maybe. And that I thought was a little confusing and not, not as strong um, as her character had been the previous season. It was interesting because I, I, I can see what you're saying. I didn't necessarily interpret it quite the same way because I saw her relationship with Joe being more about her kind of using Joe. <laughs> I didn't see it so much as about her trying to rekindle a relationship so much as really to test out to see where he was, if he was still trustworthy, um, if he, if, you know, he was still somebody that, that she could um, trust. And then in the end, you know, she realizes, I think, pretty quickly that he's not. And therefore, she just kind of uses him. Um, and because I mean, that moment where they, you know, they sleep together and then it leads to his death when she kills him, which is such a shock. I mean, it's still a shocking scene. You kind of know it's coming, but it still kind of blows your mind that they go there. Um, but I, I, I just get this feeling like, you know, she already kind of, I feel like instinctively understood that he probably wasn't right. And she could already sense that he wasn't the same person. Because she even says that to Dagomi, you know, the, the, the Joe that I knew is gone. You know, he, he no longer exists. Um, so I didn't quite feel that there. Now, I did kind of feel that, though, like you mentioned with Frank. In that moment where she reconnects with him and she wants him to come with her and everything. And, and you know, um, you know yeah, I, I kind of uh, that was I felt like that just felt a little bit forced you know, um, and, and, you know, I guess in that position, you'd probably want to try and resolve whatever issues you had, because you never know what day you're going to die in this universe, and so, um, but I didn't feel like that one worked as well, and then, you know, it was interesting, because with, with Wyatt and her, uh, all of this, too, was interesting, because I feel like it, this is also how Juliana's trying to survive, right, um, and she is somebody who's kind of learned that you can't completely ever truly trust anyone, maybe except yourself. And you have to really test to see if people can be trustworthy. And I appreciated that, you know, with Wyatt, it's it's more of a flirtation that they have instead of a full-blown romance. Um, but, yeah, it's just... I, I, I was a little disappointed that she kind of just hopped from man to man to man. And not that there's anything wrong with, you know, I'm not I'm not calling her any names or anything. I'm just saying I just felt like it took a little bit. It felt like sometimes it took a little bit of agency away from her in some ways. Um, but at the same time, there were, especially with Joe, I felt like there was the most agency because I felt like she was using him. Yeah, it's it's a good point. Uh, you, you, you make a really good point. Um, I hadn't thought about it quite like that um and i it's actually it, it's it sort of helps me see it in a different way um at the same time in a way it also kind of like i think it helps me identify also what bugged me specifically with joe and it's not at all i mean not, not like i'm i'm not um uh, a prude or anything um and like you it's not that i want to you know that there's anything wrong <laughs> in and of itself with that. But I, th I think that what kind of surprised me and not in a positive way was the fact, like, I think I was more surprised by the fact that she slept with him than the fact that she kills him. I felt like where she was at when, she, when they meet again and what she sees in him, I, I felt like her, her character, 
was more aware in uh, morally kind of uh, not that there's so not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong morally with her sleeping with him, but like in terms of like the way she would look at him. I, I had a hard time, I think, believing that from where she's at in the story, she could she could see him in a way that would lead her to still feel enough attraction and affection to be to want to be physically intimate with him. I felt like she would not necessarily just like be revulsed or anything, but like like you were saying, like at that point. She has lived in this in this world long enough, and now is aware enough that she would that she. I felt like she would see. She saw the signs right away that she that he was not the Joe that she had met and loved, and that you know she would. I I, I just when when they when she slept with him, I was like I I, I really remember thinking what what are you doing? There's no, you know, I don't understand why, you know, why you're, why you're going to bed with this guy. Like you, you clearly can see that he's not, he's not the guy. He, he, something's happened to him and she doesn't know the details yet, but something's happened to him. And it felt like she was just kind of like, you know, just going with it because, because it was kind of like, Oh, well, you know, he's this guy who I used to be in love with. And it, it just didn't, it, it feel like it felt to me like it undermined her character a little bit in a way that, that was again, played up. It doesn't, they don't sleep together, but it was kind of the same, the same aspect of her that I thought came out when she sort of has this impulse to tell Frank, maybe we can run away together. It's almost, even though it doesn't, they don't sleep together, but it's kind of the same thing. It's this sort of like this very childlike in the moment, you know, I, I want to believe, I want to believe that, that this doesn't have to be the way that, that I already know it is. And I felt like that kind of weakened her character because she came across as so much smarter and stronger than that in season two, that it felt like, you know, they were just making her a little, they were writing her a little, a little too impulsive. That's where with, again, with Joe, I, I, by the time that she does, by the time she gets kind of sexual with him, I feel like it's a, it's a, she's using a ploy on him at that point. So I didn't see it quite as much as, as her, um, you know, being caught up in anything or not. I, I felt like she saw him for who she, he he was at that point, but the best way to go about it was pretending like she was still in love with him. And that would keep him along this line so that he keep trusting her so that she could get what she needed out of him, which is at that point, I feel like too, she's also feeling like he's probably, uh, he, he's probably a spy. Basically <laughs> he's probably doing something wrong with, with Frank though. Again, I totally do agree with you. There's that moment where she's like, well, we could run away together. And then I, I did get the thought that they actually slept together because she's like, well, let's just pretend for the night that we're not, that none of that is true. Um, and it did, again, I guess, it, you know, it kind of wraps up their relationship and it gives closure to everything, but it does feel, I, it, that's where I, I, it wasn't so much there's anything wrong with it. It just felt really cliched and it did feel, but at the same time, I also was trying to put myself in her position, which was, you know, when you live in such an awful world, 
maybe you try to take a little bit of pleasure and and hope and joy in in actually being alive wherever you can get it and to just have a moment with frank you know maybe that's what they're going for in that scene which is to say yeah this we're, we might not be meant to be together but we do mean something to each other and let's enjoy this moment while we have it which it is fine i just don't know if it comes off quite as well as they want it to but I, I, you know, I think what's real so interesting is this. When I'm thinking about this whole idea about how to survive, one of the things that I really noticed was that for John Smith, he exchanged the truth for a lie, and he's lived with that lie so long, it's destroying him. And the the problem here, and and the difference between him and Juliana is that once Juliana realized what the lies were she started to live in the truth she didn't live still by the lies and everybody that we see in this this story that kind of finds some kind of freedom goes from living for the lies and in the lies and living for the truth because i mean we see that with frank we see that with ed Uh, we even see that with robert you know at the very end you know choosing to help uh uh um, Ed and um, what's his name? Um, Ed's boyfriend. I can't remember his name. Um, I, I can't either. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, but so I mean, you know, you you see all of these characters who, and and that's the thing that, and I think that's the difference is that uh, of the people that then go and help Juliana in the end. How you survive? Are you going to? Are you going to continue to, even when you're faced, confronted with the truth, which is the film, right? How you choose to live after that lets you know what side you are truly on. And in the end, that we can't live a life that embraces lies as if they're the truth, because they'll end up destroying us. And that's, I think, when we think about, like, survival in this this series... I think that's the thing that I was really struck by and we're seeing. And I think that it plays so well. You mentioned really early on in the episode, but I think one of the most important things was this whole idea of this year null, where the Fuhrer's great plan to basically collectively brainwash the American Reich is to take away their history from them. I love Nicole's quote. She says, deprive people of their national consciousness, dilute their national pride, do not teach their history. The way that you destroy a people is, and to control them is to take away everything that makes them who they are, which that's our history, our tradition, our, um, our sense of being, uh, who we are. All of that comes from the past. And when you destroy somebody's past, um, you can mold their future however they want. And that's exactly what uh, the Fuhrer wants, basically. He wants to mold the, the Nazi youth, the American Reich, to make them in their image by not allowing them to have any other image but the Reich. And I think it, it just, it blew my mind. And this is the thing I think I love the most about this this season was this whole idea because it's the one that I see playing out in our world today, honestly. And it's the one that's most scary to me. And I loved that it's juxtaposed against Frank and the Jews. And uh, you have that beautiful ceremony of his bar mitzvah where, um, you know, he's reminded that 
the way our people have survived for 5,000 years is by our tradition, by knowing who we are, that it's not about a place, it's not about anything else, it's about intrinsically knowing who we are, and that is what allows um, and keeps us from being able to be uh, and just to be able to survive in a way that n many other places have not been able to survive. And I just thought that there's a real beauty to this whole idea, but also a real, uh, you know, it, it's scary to watch because, you know, the moment that we forget the past, we're just doomed to repeat it. And this this season really makes that clear in the way that if you want to destroy a society you begin to completely deprive people of any kind of national consciousness, national pride, history, good and bad. Like, we need the good history and the bad history. Because if we forget our bad history, we're, again, we're doomed to repeat it. And so there's the importance of having both. Uh, and it's just a really, um, I think it's the best, to, for me, this is the best part of this the, this season. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, my my favorite, the the high moment of the season for me was that episode and the, the cross cutting that was brilliant between, you know, Himmler making his speech and, and Frank's bar mitzvah. And I mean that it was artistically beautiful, narratively beautiful. And it made the point um, that the writers and producers were trying to make very powerfully very powerfully and very obviously, but in a good way, not, not obvious in a, in a kind of, you know, like hitting you on the head with it. It was, it was very clear and undeniable, but in a, in a way that was, that was uh, tactful and tasteful. And, um, I felt like, you know, it's like, like you said, it's, it's the, these two very powerful, simple, but very strong ideas on the one hand. Um, you know, you, um, you can do what you need to do to live, to survive, but you won't necessarily be alive. And then on the other end, there is the concept of you can't kill an idea. And, and the fact that, you know, the people, the characters who embrace, who understand that notion that my life i mean to com to go back to a comparison with star wars that that plays out in that moment between obi-wan kenobi and darth vader in the first film right when when vader basically tells kenobi you're old you're weak you can't win and in essence kenobi tells him i've already won because basically Either I win the fight or you strike me down and I still win the fight because he understands that it's not his, his winning, his survival is not hanging on to his own flesh and body is not hanging on to, you know, it's, it's, it's just living true to the idea that he believes in all the way to the end and that if he has faith in that then he you know he cannot be beaten he cannot be defeated because the idea cannot be killed even if his body is he has faith that in death that will help that will do what must be done for the idea to live on 
which brings about the villain's defeat. And it's the same thing here. You know, you can see kind of, you can, and it's very well played, you know, by the, the actor, I forget his name, who plays Himmler, this kind of consuming madness, this greed of this, this like power that feeds him as, as the plan comes together, as, as he makes his speech. But you can, you can see how that is, that, that's the same as Vader saying, you know, I've won, you're weak. You, you can see that in the, what it gives is it, it does not provide anything beyond that moment. Um, and that's what's the same thing George talked about in good versus evil, you know, whatever gratification you get from bad evil actions, that gratification is always only in the moment. It doesn't give you anything really in the long term, which is why it's not self-sustaining. It's not real fuel. And so you keep having to, to refill yourself with it more and more and more and more often because it doesn't feed you. It doesn't give you anything until the point where you just cannot no longer feed yourself that. And then you just, you just crumble. Whereas you see Frank and you see him understanding through that ritual that his life in the most beautiful way is irrelevant and that he's safe in the best way, no matter what happens to him, because he's part of this thing, which is so much bigger than him, so much older than him, and which through that he understands will carry on through him and beyond him, which I think is why it leads his, his spoiler alert, his death scene in the season is beautiful and that I thought was very well done because it's it's not it's it's easy to overplay and to kind of go cliche when a character has this sort of uh, moment where they you know they're they're going to die they know they're going to die and they embrace that a lot of times you can play that kind of two on the corny side but I thought it, it was it was done beautifully um, by both actors because you can see that there's this form of respect. They both understood, right, that they that the faith in what they are is something which allows them to really not fear death because their their lives are about something much bigger than their own flesh and body. And and so I think that's ultimate ultimately his reward sort of is that he he is killed, but he is completely at peace and unafraid because he knows that he's embraced this thing that's so much bigger than him. Yeah, I think, you know, it, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that there's there is really a clear distinction between these two types of societies, right? You know, when you when like you were talking about the, you know, the intercutting between um Himmler and the Bar Mitzvah. And there is a clear distinction of one is better than the other. You know, that that not all societies are equal. You know, um, and and therefore we can, we we can make that distinction between societies that are are better for. Again, it becomes there is that utilitarian type of argument, but I I think it even goes way beyond that. It's just when we see the two side by side, we can clearly say one is better than the other. You know, and and we know that instinctively, and I think that's the thing that you know makes that beautiful is because. There is the distinction as well between one that is rooted in thousands of years of history that have allowed people to survive um, and one that is um, trying to force everybody to live in just one specific, very narrow um, view, human view 
of what is, you know, quote unquote, perfect, you know, and um, I think that's the difference between a human ideal of what is, is perfect and looking towards something like you said, beyond yourself, religiously, you know, I mean, I think all religions look towards something beyond themselves for something bigger. And um, so I think there's a, there is a big difference there. And I just really appreciated that the season was willing to um, get into that kind of big, big question that, 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 you know, these are the meta questions of life that the show is talking about throughout its three seasons. And I think, it kind of, it, you know, this season, it kind of brings it to a head, you know, with, with that moment. And it's, it's a great place to go. Uh, I think with this season, um, I did, I, you know, we talked a little, we talked a lot about Julian earlier, but I thought it was interesting that I feel like next to John Smith, she is still very much a thread because in many ways it's her choices and then are moving things forward and she's continually kind of inspiring people still. And a lot of the people that we see make the choices that they do are because of her, you know, like it, Frank and uh, Ed, Wyatt, um, even Tagomi. Uh, and, and I think there's even some residual effect on John Smith and his, uh, his relationship with Juliana um, and, and the, 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 the plans that she put into place, you know, like, um, he doesn't, I don't know if he even realizes it, but you know, the, the reason that he had the film was partly in place because of her and Tagomi, you know, like, and so what I thought was really interesting is that there is still this nucleus of this person who is, her actions are having all of these ripple effects and she isn't quite as, I don't know if she's quite as much the centerpiece this season as she was last season, maybe, but that there she's still very much the the center stone that's rippling the pond, and these ripples just continue to flow outwards from the choices that she's making. I thought that was really cool to see that they're still continuing that, and that makes me interested to see. Uh, specifically where you know she ends up in season four and i think then of course on the other side the other thread with where you know john smith ends up yeah i um i i agree i i think that um she is definitely meant to still be the the thrust that you described and kind of that you know you put it perfectly this sort of ripple effect that affects all the other characters and is going to kind of affect the destiny of this world in the end probably um, it just, to me, uh, I could tell that this, this was definitely the intention to me. It felt like it was, there were other things coming into the season that even though it was the intention somewhat diluted that. And, and so that's why on a personal level at, at the end of the day, at the end of the season, I was more interested or, or I felt like the character of Smith was a clearer through line or sort of had a, 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 a seemed stronger as a central through line in, into the into the season than she was and that i think has to do with what i touched upon a little earlier which i think that generally speaking um it felt and if i'm going to critique the show this season it's really going to be on that that i'm going to ding it and and again i still i love the season overall so we're talking about like you know critique within within a positive um area right but i felt like um, they got maybe a little too ambitious 
in some ways and try to have the story be a little too big in, in, in several ways, one of which was by introducing, I believe, too many characters. Um, and none of them are bad characters in and of themselves. They're all interesting characters. So I could see why as writers, especially good writers, you think of these people and you're like, oh man, it would be cool to have this character. It would be cool to have that character. But at the end of the day, you have to do service to the story. And if you have 12 characters and they're all awesome, but you realize if you do, because you know, 2020 hindsight is also easy. Um, if you do at the time that having 12 awesome characters does a disservice to the story, you owe it to the story to say, okay, well, crap, it sucks. But what, what ones are the ones that we really need for the story? And what are the ones that are hurting or might hurt the story? And no matter how cool they are, we got we to gotta ask those. And I felt like they were, they were definitely, I don't know if they were aware of that going in, but I felt like they, they were somewhat aware at some point at least because their effort to kind of call down the number of characters and, and kill off some of them, you know, I, I don't think was um, just for drama's sake or, or incidental. I think it was them being aware that they had too big of an ensemble and that they had to start to kind of narrow down the number of, of uh, arcs we're going to follow. And so they were, you know, I've seen that in other shows before where at some point you can see the writers becoming aware, uh Oh, where this is going to becoming it's branching off too much. So we have to like tie off this loose end and this loose end so that we can kind of, you know, bring it back to the main, the main trunk of the, you know, the, the tree. And I feel like, that definitely touched on Juliana, but all the others I felt, for example, I thought I liked the concept of pairing up every character, because if you look at the season, they literally paired up every character. Everyone had a, a love arc to a degree. And I mean that in the best way, you know, not, not as a soap opera kind of thing, but like where to explore the dimension of the character. Um, and again, if you just look at that character and what that did, it's very interesting. It's very well done, but combined, I think it did a disservice to the story because some of them, if you were doing like, you know, I don't know, some kind of insulary material related to man in the high castle, I would say, Oh, I would love to watch webisodes about, you know, this character and see kind of that they had this relationship, you know, like the, 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 the camp a, you know, and so on. That's really interesting, but I felt like it kind of got in the way of the bigger, the bigger pillars of this story and the world of the story. And in a way it kind of like, if you're going to explore concepts of love and, and, you know, good and wrong, how, be, how people can still be good and how they have a relationship with someone, even people who are in a position to do bad things, all these are interesting concepts, but when you do it for every character, it's, it starts to kind of appear a little formulaic. And then, and then at the end of the day, what that happens is it kind of decreases the quality of it for all the characters, as opposed to like, if you do it for the best of the characters who really advance the story, then I think it really comes, it, it strengthens the master, the sort of the master story and, and also that concept. So I feel like that kind of is what made, just speaking of Juliana, kind of, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's what m didn't make her as strong um, in the season as someone like Smith, for, for me, for example.
Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I think there's a lot of places in the, the season where, you know, we just have lots of story, you know, and there are many places where I think where you mentioned, you know, we're kind of culling characters because um, we we need the story to be more focused than in season four going forward. You know, Frank meets his end, Joe meets his end. Um, you know, we we have John possibly losing his family, so maybe we don't have to focus on that quite as much the next season. Um, you know, it might come intermediately. Intermediately. It might come every once in a while, but you know, you're not going to get it a lot, possibly. Uh, Himmler's on death's door. Um, you know, heck, Lady Liberty died, and so did the Bell. Um, so, uh, and we have a lot of things that have gone by the wayside in this season, and um, I'm very interested to see the way that we move forward with there. But there were there were parts of the story that I was appreciative that they did add. Like I loved that you know in the second season we had Tagomi face the the fact of having a family in the other world. And it almost seems as that impacts him so that once he meets the woman on the beach um, and they start this relationship that he begins to basically live life again. Like he, he finally opens up to the fact that there is more to life than just doing his job. Um, whereas, you know, I, I felt like with uh, the inspector kind of adding adding that kind of weird relationship he has with the girl at the bar is a little bit strange to me. Like, uh, but then him setting her, you know, free and, you know, that she has the money to go then live wherever that she wants was interesting. Um, but you know, like, so just kind of juxtaposing, there were parts where I felt like you were really adding to a character and their story. And then there were other parts where it's like, I don't mind this story, but I'm not quite sure if this is exactly the the place I want us to be spending as much time as we're kind of devoting it to it in certain episodes, you know? So, you know, I do agree. I think there were places where I almost wish that they had found a way to tighten the season up a little bit with the character line and the character stories that they had going. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and uh, yeah, those, those were great examples. I think that they're both really cool. They're both really cool character explorations because they're they both help make these characters more real. Um so in and of themselves in a vacuum, they're they're very well thought out. But like you were saying, I, I feel like Tagomi's arc really not only is very well thought out on an individual level, but really serves a greater purpose in advancing the the overall story of the world and the the sort of the overall arc of the series. Whereas the inspectors um, is cool, but it doesn't feel as necessary to the overarching story of the series. And it's one of those, you know, where if Man in the High Castle did like shorts like Star Trek Discovery did, you know, I would see. I would say, okay, it's great if you want to give me like two or three ep- ten-minute episodes that show, you know, the fact that the inspector has this kind of what his what his personal life is, or the the, the comparison of like the struggle, the inner struggle he has between the fact that he has his family and he misses them in Japan. And he wishes he had never come to the United States because 
you know, he's a far apart from his homeland and his family, but he's kind of grown almost his own secondary life. And that kind of comes with its own decision, moral decisions. I would say that's a great thing to do, but it doesn't feel like it really, it feels like it comes in the way as far as part of the, the main uh, through line for the, for the series. And I felt like that they did a little too much of that um, overall. And in it, even like, in terms of uh, locations, I, you know that this um, the the bar that we keep going to in um, Denver, it's it's a beautiful set, like it's a gorgeous set, and you can tell that they they spent a lot of time building this great set, lighting it beautifully. It it's a great setup for uh, some cool scenes, but then it becomes it feels to me like it becomes this extra place, which they now have. And now someone says, well, we got to use it. And I feel like it's one place too many to go to, which doesn't really, in a way, on the one hand, I feel like at the meta level, it's not really a necessary place to advance the plot, but because they have it, it kind of creates almost in a clumsy way, the exact opposite where now because they, they want to use it, it becomes this Deus Ex Machina place where if you look about, if you look at it, even though it's supposed to be this kind of random dive bar in Denver, every central character to the story at some point in the season winds up at that bar for one reason or another, which, which kind of then sort of spills for me almost into like, like a small universe syndrome where randomly coincidentally, these people who don't really come in contact with one another and who are like at complete, I mean, we have like, you know, the Reich Führer almost. And then these people on the, on the Pacific States and, you know, these gangsters, everybody goes through this place. It, it feels like it's a little contrived um, and it kind of drives the story in places that I almost don't want it to go. And again, I, I'm, I, I sound more critical than I really am because it, it was never bad but I felt like it was kind of not as natural as the story could have been if it hadn't had all these extra things that they tried to build up. Like I feel like they were almost on the verge of falling into the trappings of other series like the X-Files or Lost, which sort of become trapped by their own success and feel like, well, shoot, what are we going to do? Because people love this so much. We have to go bigger next season. We have to have more sets, more characters, more plot lines. And, and that, that usually goes only one place, which is at some point you have too many places to juggle and it kind of all falls apart. So I hope that they're wise enough to kind of do what Battlestar Galactica, for example, did. They, they also started, in my opinion, the new you know, series to kind of go there and I think caught themselves and then brought it back and wrapped things up right before it got really too crazy. And I think, I hope that, that Man in the High Castle can do the same thing of sort of keeping their eye on the goal line, not trying to necessarily just go bigger to go bigger from season to season. And then just say, let's just stick to the story we're trying to tell and do what we need to do to tell that story. Nothing more. Yeah. One of the things that I did like is, you know, when we get to the, you know, that very last episode and, and we have one of the things that we, we get the culmination of, you know, all the time we spent with Wyatt, which I thought was really good. And, and the fact that he basically takes up the mantle once Juliana is gone and finds a way that he can influence things 
with his uh, friend who's in the pornography business, which is, again, a place that shows us the way in which uh, people on the Reich are willing to break the rules for their, you know, whatever their desires are. Um, but using that to his advantage to create copies of the film, the film, you know, to spread out across the world. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, also working to shoot Himmler, um, possibly taking him out of the picture, Um and then, uh, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, of course, then we uh, have that where, you know, Juliana finally travels um, to uh, another world. Um, and so, you know, I feel like between her and Smith and Wyatt and where their three storylines go, I'm really fascinated to see where they take this for a fourth season, and I also hope that, and, and this is just my hope, is just that season four is also the last season. I'm hoping that they will not try and do the thing where, oh, yes, we've been popular, so we just need to keep continuing the storyline. I don't want the storyline to get diluted. I really want things to find a way to um, come to a close, and I feel like, it, it feels like to me that what you've done in season three has given you a good opportunity then to wrap the see the, the the series up with a season four specifically since we now know there's no way for the nazis to actually enact their plan anyway of traveling to other worlds the way that they want to so that's really kind of a, i think you know a moot point um so this isn't about traveling to other universes and necessarily trying to completely protect them because they can never do what they want to do anyway. Um, this really is about finding a way to enact change in this world. I completely agree with you. Um, and I, I think um, you talked about like the whole Nazi plot of, you know, invading other worlds and I'm the, at the, as a sort of like even almost old school classic sci-fi high concept, it's, it's really cool. Um, I really hope that going with what I was saying and what you just said, that it, the only extent to which it's part of season four is as a device to help explore the internal conflicts that we talked about. Um, because, you know, I mean, if you look, if you listen back to what we've been saying for the last hour, to me, and if we just, not to be presumptuous, but if we use ourselves, right, kind of as an example, as a, as a sort of a, a, a sample of what is, what is relevant and deep and, and good uh, about this show, you can tell that it's really, you know, the questions it asks about us, about our nature, um, internal things, which is what, in my opinion, all good, quote unquote, you know, pure sci-fi with a capital P does is really actually ask questions about human nature. And I think that, you know, the, the, the whole invasion plot is really silly. If we're going to go just with the, with the sci-fi aspect of it, almost in a kind of flash Gordon way, um, if they're using it as a plot device to heighten the stakes and the questions, the internal questions and the moral compasses of the characters um, in the series, then it's actually, it's a, it's a great potential plot device. But like you said, the idea, if we're going to go into kind of like the Trek, Star Trek tech, tech, the tech dynamics of that idea is so silly 
so ridiculous that that it, it would you know i really hope that they're not trying to kind of make the show bigger and more epic by saying oh and now we're going to have this kind of ticking clock of like this potential nazi invasion across universes because it's really based on the rules that they've set up themselves for how this works and what happens it's just completely silly it just would not work at all so um you know i i really for me like what I, what i'm really excited about season four is what we what we talked about the continuation of these these explorations these these internal explorations um and then that brings me back you know one last time to kind of that to me that 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 really symbolizes it that that cross-cutting um sequence between himmler announcing year null and then frank bar mitzvah pranks bar, bar, bar mitzvah and, and i really think that that's that is where the true depth and the soul of this show rests you know it has the ability to do that and to use science fiction ideas to really express very well um these beautiful powerful notions you know i think that even in the filmmaking something i wanted to touch on um quickly the filmmaking aspect um and you talked uh, when we were when we were discussing that those sequences about the idea that you know some choices are clearly good and some choices are bad and and evoking that innate sense of knowing um what is good and what is wrong and i think that the filmmaking in in those moments is really strong and and is um crafted intentionally to do that uh you have you know frank's bar mitzvah is sh all shot inside and it creates this inner you know comfortable womb-like feeling the light is warm the lighting is is meant to be to be you know all with warm colors um safe and inviting the sequence with himmler and your null is the exact opposite it's all outside it's all shot and lit with really cool colors it's cold it's wider lenses that show you know much more a much more imposing sense of scale but not in a good way it's kind of all very massive and weighty instead of being sort of uh, uh uh you know closed lenses that sort of create this kind of intimate feeling of safety and comfort and so that's really i think in the, the music is beautiful in in uh and used um, in editing very well in, in that sequence and i think that this is really where the show is at its best when it when it like uses the sci-fi concept premise of the of the series and the filmmaking skills of everyone involved to kind of really bring it all towards these really powerful universal internal questions about about our nature what um kind of thinking along those lines then uh, if you were going to kind of give a rating to season three where do you think you fall that's a good question um i think um I would probably give it on a scale of let's say five. Um, I'd give it a uh, three three point seven five three three quarters. Um, I think I would probably give season two a four or four and a quarter. You know, on on a, on a on a scale of one to five. So it's very strong. It's very good. It's very entertaining. It's very well shot. It's very well acted. Overall, it's well written. Um, it's just it's maybe it's not quite as effective in my mind as season two was. Not quite as pure um, in the narrative. That's why I kind of ding it a little bit. But it's still really really good. I kind of loved that uh, that moment, and I didn't mention it earlier, but you know, with your Noel being announced and 
it was a perfect representation of um, Padme in episode three. So this is how Liberty dies to thunderous applause. And it's exactly the same type of moment. And I loved getting to kind of see that played out in a different place and, and legitimately almost the same type of way. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I completely, completely, completely agree with you. And I, I don't know if you remember when I was watching season two, um, I remember exactly where I was even. Um, it was like winter, like whatever, a year or two years ago. Um, and I was, you know, I was watching this, the, the episode um, where it's when they're in, in Berlin and um, where there's this huge speech in front of the, the assembly. Um, and I remember texting you and I was, I, I was like, cause I had this moment where I was really just thinking to myself, Oh my God, if George was making the prequels today and was making it for streaming, because let's face it, this is kind of where, where content is at like quality content today. This is kind of what it would be like, you know, this is what, this is the, the scope and the epicness of the, the prequel story would be, it would play out like that. And, and I remember texting him being like, man, I can't wait for you to watch this because it really kind of evokes in the best way possible all the things that I think George was trying to to talk about politically um, with the ways that people can be manipulated and, you know, good becoming evil, et cetera, et cetera. And our perception of what is, what is, what is heroic and what isn't. Um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Yeah. It, feels, it feels very much to me and it's funny because, you know, George is, is inspired by what was the politics of his time and of his childhood and, and kind of the teachings of, you know, what happened in, in World War II and, and how Hitler took power. And, and so it's kind of like this full circle idea where, where you see in this thing, which is an alternative world, um, that it, that is followed the consequences of different different outcomes in World War II. You see a lot of these same ideas play out that I think George sort of disseminated um, in in his Star Wars. Yeah, I I mean it the, to me. I think I think I remember rating season two might have been uh, four point five for me. I I think this season is is probably a four uh, for me. It, it just, it, like you said, it, it doesn't reach the heights of, of season two because I don't think it's quite as tight in the storytelling. But I think a lot of the things that we got a chance to talk about, I just really enjoyed and liked about it. And so therefore, you know, I can overlook, I am overlooking some of the things that I see as being uh, not quite as strong be, and, and giving it a higher rating just because I think they did those things well. And so, you know, it is a show where I am very interested to see where it goes. Um, but I'm also, uh, you know, as we mentioned, I'm, I'm also in the place where I do want this show to not outlive its usefulness, uh, like Kirk and Spock in Star Trek VI. Um, <laughs> just a little joke there. Um, well done, well done. Yeah, and and to to find a way to tell a complete story. That can deal, because the problem is is that if you do let this go on too long, you will dilute what they've been trying to do, I think, thematically. And so keeping it less seasons will actually keep that stronger. So um, I'm very see uh, excited to see what you know what will happen in, in season four and, and what they do there. So 
be looking forward to getting a chance to to talk about it with you then it's been a blast getting a chance to talk through all these kind of things i love when you know entertainment can make us truly think and reflect on where we are and who we are and what we want to be and i think that this is a show that truly does that and so want to thank you to Send out a huge thanks to our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Daniel Noah, and Ryan Millette for their support of the network here on uh, Patreon. Patreon.com is the best place to go to help support the network. Uh, we are a huge network, and there's no way that we can afford just as hosts to put this network together every single week without people just like you. Uh, Patreon.com allows you to support the network a little bit each month. Uh, we also have great contribution levels that you can su uh, subscribe at that allow certain perks, like, as I mentioned, our associate producers here all chose the 602 Club as one of their perks to be associate producer of. Um, there are other perks that come as well. But again, honestly, every little bit helps. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team. Now, I uh, love having you on, Nick. It is so much fun getting a chance to talk about, uh, you know, things like this together. Uh, and it's always fun to be back together since this is actually how we met so uh let Thank everybody you. yeah um but uh let everybody know where they can find you if they want to catch up with you and talk to you more about maybe this or anything else that you've got going on since uh you've got a pretty busy life these days <laughs> yes i do um yeah it's always always i mean to say it's a pleasure is an understatement um like you said this is where we met this is the first uh place where i kind of started to get into podcasts uh listening and then you know being lucky enough to participate um, you know, you and, and John, a whole, you know, other group of, of people that, I, that I'm really proud to come call friends now. Um, so, uh, it is a privilege for me when, when we find the time to have these discussions again, uh, if, um, people want to reach me the best, I don't have a very big, um, footprint on, uh, on the interwebs. Um, the best is to get to me on the book of faces. Um, they can find me under my name there. Uh, also I am quite active, um, in the Babel conference, Trek FM's, uh, forum on Facebook. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm there every week, even if I, even if it's, uh, even if I pipe in only a couple of times, I'll make a point to just be there and say, Hey, to, um, my favorite hosts and, and friends there. So, uh, those are probably the two best places to, uh, to find me. Awesome. Uh, and it is always great when you, you pop in there because usually it's a, I would say, quite lengthy discussion point about something that you've been thinking about, uh, which is always really fun to get to read. So make sure you do uh, look up Nick there on the, the Book of Faces. Uh, you can find me uh, all over the place on social media under the name MattRushing02. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Tumblr under those names, under that name. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing the Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. You can find me over on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is called Owl Post, and I do that with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, just one chapter at a time. It's been a lot of fun doing that, so I hope you'll check that out. And then uh, you can also find me oh, doing the show Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. And each week we just choose a topic from Star Wars that we've been thinking about, kind of dive in deep with that. It is a lot of fun. I think you'll love it. And then last but not least, I do a show called Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney. And that's where we talk about films, but through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 
Mm-hmm.